You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, this morning, we um, are going to bring to a close our series called Surprising Grace. And what we have been doing in this series is we um, opened up the genealogy that is recorded in Matthew chapter 1. And we have, for the last several weeks, been reading from that genealogy and making special note of the women that appear in the genealogy of Jesus. And we have said that the fact that um, the genealogy is there is not a surprise. It, it, Luke is writing to a Jewish audience, he's making the case that Jesus is the long-awaited for Messiah, the king of the universe. And as with all kings, what you do is you present a lineage, you present their line. And um, so that in and of itself is not surprising, but what is the surprising thing is that in the middle of this genealogy, actually not even the middle, right there at the beginning of the genealogy, Matthew is going to insert... um, not out of necessity, but out of our deep theological need to know who Jesus is and who He comes from. He is not only the Son of God, He is also the Son of Man. He came and took on humanity, all of it. The good, the bad, and the very ugly. And the names of the women remind us, with each one, a a scandal or a shame or something we wish that we uh, could forget. I mean, these are the names you, you, you like to forget. They're the stories and scenes you wish you couldn't remember. Very much like all of our own lives. These women represent the nobodies, and the not wanted. Those that, on paper otherwise, make no significant real difference in the world except for the fact that that God, by His surprising grace, has redeemed every one of them. And not just redeemed them, but redeemed their stories, redeemed their lives, and they become a part of the holy lineage of the very Son of God. Grace bursts through into their lives. And so this morning, we are going to conclude with the last woman that shows up in the genealogy of Jesus. It comes at the end of the genealogy list where we see that Joseph is going to be the father of Jesus by Mary of the house of David. And so, But to look at Mary's life, or to look at the scene, I want us to turn to Luke chapter 2. That's where we're going to be, and I'll, I'll begin this way. One of my favorite Christmas stories, um, it features a family who knows nothing about Christmas. Maybe you know the story. Maybe you've read it. It's the best Christmas pageant ever. Barbara Robinson is the writer of that. She wrote it back in the uh, 70s. Uh, it begins this way, the Herdmans were the worst Kids in the whole history of the world, 
They lied and stole and smoked cigars, even the girls, and talked dirty and cussed their teachers and took the Lord's name in vain. And they even set Fred Shoemaker's old broken down tool house on fire. The six Herdman kids were introduced to them. They, they don't have a father. Their mother works two jobs. They stole lunches. They got in fights. They never really bathed. They pretty much ran wild and terrorized all the kids at their school. And church, it is noted, that is one of the place, places that all the other kids felt secure because the Herdmans would never set foot in a church. It was their day of rest, they said. But when the Herdmans heard that the church offered refreshments after Sunday school, um, they began showing up for the cookies and the Kool-Aid, all you could eat. And then the church held auditions for the annual Christmas pageant, and the Herdmans decided that's what they wanted to be in. This was going to be their big break. So they threatened the other kids, and they grabbed all the best parts. See, these are not what you'd call the models, model citizens. They, they weren't certainly the model Christians, if Christians at all. The town's people, the church people, they didn't want to have anything to do with them. One of the narrator, the narrator tells us in the story that Elmer Hopkins, the minister's son, had been Joseph for as long as I can remember. And my friend Alice uh, Wendelkin is Mary because she's so smart and so neat and clean and most of all, so holy looking. Well, the parents all rebel against the idea of the Herdman children being cast in the pageant. Alice's mother, she tells the the ladies aid, uh, that it was sacrilege to let Imogene be Mary. Some of the people said it wasn't fair for the whole family who didn't even go to our church to barge in and take over the pageant. No, no one was even going to let their infant play Jesus because they didn't want to be taken care of by the rough and tumble herdmans. Everyone in church assumed the Christmas pageant starring the herdmans would be a disaster. And yet... It's this great reminder that the Herdmans, they're the very type of people whom Christ Jesus reached out to. That the people on the fringe of the society, the, the nobodies, the not wanted, and they end up in the story crashing into the surprising grace of the story of Jesus. And so I want to read it this morning. It's from Luke chapter 2, and it is traditionally what we think of as the Christmas story. This is what it says. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David. And he went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them. They were filled with fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior 
who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel, uh, with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. When the angels went away from them in heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they'd heard and seen as it had been told to them. It's the word of the Lord. You know, Luke begins the account, and he sets the stage, uh, and he's setting a stage actually of world history for us. You know, he, he begins with this imperial edict of Caesar Augustus. In those days, uh, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. But, but the events that follow, you have to know the events that follow, they're not owing to Caesar, they're, they're owing to God. It's the sovereignty of God that's in view in this whole story. Mary's recounting the story to Luke. Luke says at the very beginning, Listen, I, I, I took great pains of, um, of the things that were um, accomplished among us, just as those that from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers who've delivered the word to us. It seemed good to me, having followed all these things closely for some time, to write an orderly Account. Luke has, as a journalist, interviewed all the eyewitnesses and, and very likely the, the disciples and the people that knew Jesus while he ministered and while he grew up and in, certainly including Mary. This is her story. But the events in the story we're hearing, they, they're not owing to Caesar. These don't happen because of Caesar. The sovereignty of God is in view. The most powerful man in the known world is simply a pawn in the hands of God. You, you see, we, we know the story. I mean, we, we, we know what's supposed to happen. The child is to be born in Bethlehem. That's what the prophet says. This is what the wise men knew. That's, that's the lineage and the family of the Messiah. That's where he's to be born, to be born in Bethlehem. Yet, you know who, in the previous chapter, when the angel comes to Mary, you, do you know where she lives? She's from Nazareth. A teenage girl in Nazareth visited by the Holy Spirit. The virgin is not in Bethlehem. She's in Nazareth. Why pick a girl from Nazareth? Why, why not go to Bethlehem and pick a girl from there? Why does the story begin in Nazareth, not in Bethlehem? It does so because God's going to exert his rule. God's going to get the glory. And what looks like an act of Caesar is actually a perfectly timed move of God. All things are under his control. All movements are by his hand. See, it reminds us this morning, Mary will discover God is not efficient. I mean, as much as we want him to be, 
As much as we want to help God write the story, we have to remember it's His story. This is His plan from before the foundations of time, which means before the heavens were spun and the, and the earth is formed at the sun and the moon and the stars, before all of that, before there was such a thing as time or space or 24-hour days, God ordained this. Before the creation of man, God planned the incarnation. God created what He would become. He ordained the day His Son would enter the world, which means God not only knew the hearts of every man and every woman that would make up the genealogy of Jesus. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. There's no heart, no person, no family, no event, no series of events over which God is not sovereign. As Caesar sat in his palace and made his decree and thought he was exercising his supreme will, you know, flexing his, his muscle, all the while he's just a tool in God's hands. God had promised the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem and that promise would be fulfilled. Not only do we see God's sovereignty, but I want you to see that God forges this incredible beauty of His glory, and oftentimes He does it in the midst of humility and weakness and suffering. So I might argue that the story, most profound and most significant, that what is most profound and most significant takes place in the most simple and lonely ways. So you have to think that in the last hundred years, uh, the most important events on this planet are covered by the news, right? I mean, we've, we've come to believe that the most important people in our midst, the, the most important people in our world are the ones that are wealthy and powerful and famous. In, in fact, the Bible doesn't see it that way at all. I would argue that a world peace summit held among the nations is not nearly as significant a father or a mother gathering their family around God's Word or leading a group of six-year-olds to a deeper understanding of how big and marvelous and loving God is. So one of the things that strikes me about Luke's narrative here as he writes this is how simple it is in contrast to how great the events are. The story's told so simply. And yet, what he's describing is the greatest event in all of human history. When our oldest was born, when Maggie was born, it was a party. I mean, it was a, it was a celebration. I mean, the delivery room was filled with nurses. Our doctor who delivered her was there. The pediatrician popped in. We had to kick the grandmothers out. Lobby was filled with people doing, you know, line dances and holding balloons and boxes. I'm not kidding. And, you know, cigar boxes and the cameras were flashing, videos rolling. Leslie's high on drugs and had an epidural. And I mean, it was awesome. But that's not the scene that Luke gives us here. I mean, here's a teenage girl with the man who wants to be her husband 
in an animal stable, alone. And Luke doesn't give us much detail. I mean, experience is common enough to any woman who's delivered a child. I mean, we don't have to have all the details. Luke wants us to know it was simple. And they were alone. Unto us a child is given. To us a son is born. The child is born. She wraps him tightly in swaddling clothes. She lays him in a feed trough. God entered the world. And peace between heaven and earth has just begun. You can go there today to the place where Jesus was born. It's in Bethlehem. There's a cave there. Very likely is the spot. There's a church that's been built around it, the Church of the Nativity, six miles from Jerusalem. You you can actually go and see the the place. You, You enter into the church through this small door. You have to stoop down to get in through the door. It's come to be known as the door of humility. It was probably built to keep enemies from from riding their horses through, but it's great symbolism, right? You stoop to enter. I, I don't really like the church. I don't really like the scene. It is not my favorite place to go. In fact, maybe it's my least favorite place to go when I'm in Israel. Not because of what it is, but or what it was, but Maybe because of what it's become. I mean, it's a circus. It's like this bazaar. Eternity steps into history and God becomes man and we sell souvenirs. Verse 19 tells us what Mary did. She treasured these things in her heart. She, she pondered them. She, she weighed them. She meditated on them. She treasured them. She, she worships. So we don't do that enough, do we? You know, we Facebook and we Twitter and we sling it out there for the world to comment, but we, we don't sit and reflect and treasure and worship. There's little doubt in Luke's research that this account comes from Mary, and so it's so surprising. Scholars are surprised at how sparse and pieced together it places this narrative is, and I think the reason is because Mary treasured these things in her heart. The the night was too holy for, for words. It was simple, it was lonely, it was holy, it was glorious, and she treasured it. There are moments that God has broken into your world, I'm sure. Holy moments. Do you treasure them? Does it bring you to a place of worship? Is there the sense of deep, abiding intimacy you have with God that's too great for words? I think Mary's this great model for us. So maybe today, maybe tomorrow, sometime this season, would you, would you take some time? Would you, in the midst of the chaos of Christmas, just sit and pray, meditating, remembering that Jesus has come, looking forward to that Jesus will return. Well, the scene changes in verse 8. 
and the, the baby's born, and, and we're taken to the hillside outside of the city, and it's nighttime. And there's a group of shepherds out there, and they're, they're watching over the flock, and an angel appears, and it's the first preacher of the gospel. That's what it means. I bring you good news of great joy. It's, it's the proclamation of the gospel. And listen, angels are scary. I mean, I guess they are. Every time you see an angel encountered, the first words they have to say is, fear not. I mean, they've come from the presence of God, and they're you know, glowing with His glory. I'm sure it's fearful. And shepherds, they didn't have the greatest reputation. I mean, they were, they were humble in social status. They, they were no bodies among some bodies. If you were a accused of a crime, and the only witness to take a stand in your defense was a shepherd, you were in trouble. They're, they're lowly men, some maybe even thugs. And this is who the angel is sent to proclaim the good news. This is where the gospel's preached for the very first time. It's good news of great joy for all people. It's for everyone. It's for Tamar. And Rahab, and Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, and Mary, and the shepherds, and you, and me. The, the, the whole world is gathered by Caesar to be counted and taxed. In fact, you, as late as the third century, you could have still gone to the census records and seen Mary and Joseph's name in the census records. It's good news for all the people. And look at the next line. For unto you a Savior is born who is Christ the Lord. Unto you. It's personal, it's intimate, it's for you. The lowliest, the weakest, the marginalized, the, the nobodies among somebodies. He's born for you. Your Savior your hope, your everlasting God, and su surprising grace. Interestingly enough, it's the last time the angels will preach the gospel. From here on out, the honor is given to men and women. It's the shepherds, they're the first preachers of the gospel. They're given the message, the good news is not... The good news is theirs. It's not for the priests, the religious leaders, the rulers, or the celebrities. It's for the nobodies on a hill watching sheep. Well, look at verse 13. It gives us this remarkable scene. It's breathtaking, actually. I mean, if only, if only one angel left the shepherds shaking in their boots with fear, imagine what the heavenly army did. And suddenly there was with an, the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts. That's what the word means, army. Praising God and saying. I mean, you might think of it this way. It took, it took one angel to deliver the good news. It took one angel to deliver the gospel. The, the, the news of the greatest revelation of God. One angel to deliver the news to the shepherds, it took a whole army of angels to respond to it. Gives us a hint of the magnitude of this event. 
Glory to God in the highest, and on, uh, and, and on earth peace among those with whom He's pleased. These are the first carolers. You might think about it. Think about the Royal Opera from London marching down in full array to a homeless shelter and putting on the greatest concert anyone's ever seen. Peace on earth. Well, what kind of peace? Roman peace? It's not that. Listen to Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Prince, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. God's glory comes, it's revealed in the birth of this child through this nobody from nowhere named Mary. God's peace comes everywhere he's received. And of the increase, there will be no end. You know what the pattern is? God receives infinite glory. Man receives unending peace. That's the incarnation. This is it's a great way to sum up the incarnation. God's glorified. Man receives unending peace. Well, I want to show you this last thing. Look at verse 12. It's an interesting detail. And this will be the sign for you, it says. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. This will be the sign for you. I'll tell you, this verse kind of got me this season. I mean, I've peered into it for weeks now, kind of overwhelmed by it. Mary, why don't you wrap Jesus up in swaddling clothes? Well, that's what you do with babies. You, you wrap them up, you know, you wrap them up tight. But, but the fact that, that this is going to be the sign, that this is the sign, that there he is, wrapped in swaddling clothes, that will be your sign. I mean, it's announced to the angels, it's a heavenly sign, it's a sign from God, a sign that will unmistakably bear witness to the fact that God has become man and dwells among us, that the Christ is here, that salvation is here, that the King is here, that He's the Lord. What's the sign? You'll find Him wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And the choir of angels shows up and they sing. A baby wrapped up like a mummy, laying in a stone that looks like a tiny coffin. That's the sign. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the Word, the Beloved, the High King of the universe and of all creation, enters the world in a cave, born in poverty in the midst of the scandal of a teenage girl welcomed by smelly night shift shepherds and greeted with what 
would have looked like grave clothes and a coffin. And all of this, this is the sign. And it brings the multitude of angels to their feet with full voice. I wonder if Mary, in her interview with Luke, as Luke's there, just tell me about the night. I wonder if a lump in her throat doesn't just well up as she tells this detail. I mean, in a story, in an account of the birth of Jesus that otherwise is so sparse, this detail is included twice. It's in verse 7 and it's in verse 12. Maybe it's because the detail hardly makes sense until you get to the end of Luke's story. Near the end of Luke's gospel, we find Jesus dead on a cross. And there's a man named Joseph, another Joseph. He comes and asks for the body. He's been, he's been looking for the kingdom of God. He's secretly been a follower of Jesus. I mean, by this time, everybody that's reading this gospel is looking for the kingdom. And he finds himself, and, he, and he's taking the dead body of Jesus off the cross. And you know what he does? He wraps him in grave clothes and lays him in a cave cut out of stone. And in an instance, the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus come together. We discover that's what He came to do all along. Mary discovers that's what He came to do all along. We who are born and bound in sin and rebellion, born to die, Born in poverty, our stories are scandalous. Even the best among us. You know what you're hiding. Jesus entered the world as one of us. He became one of us. God became man. That's why we call it the incarnation. He gave himself to us. And then he gave himself for us. He not only took on our humanity, He clothed Himself in our sin, our rebellion, our scandal, and then He took our place in death. He died our death wearing our grave clothes, bound in our sin. But listen, He doesn't leave us naked. He clothes us, He takes our filthy rags, He clothes us with His robes of righteousness, He trades places with us. And the great news is the story doesn't end in the manger. It doesn't end on the cross. It doesn't end in the grave. It ends with the resurrection. Three days later, those that came to mourn, those who loved him, they found the tomb open, the body gone, and the clothes lying there folded up because the grave was empty. And you know who saw it? You know who saw that sign? Who the gospel's for? Listen to the first recipients. A grieving mother, Mary's the first one. A scandalous woman who Jesus loved and a friend who betrayed him in the greatest hour of need, denied knowing him, even cursed him. That's the first recipients of the gospel. And angels were there announcing that good news. When you hear the good news announcement, when the gospel breaks in, when the surprising grace of God breaks in to your world, 
It does something to you. I'll close by finishing the story, the great Christmas, the best Christmas pageant ever. You can read it in under an hour, by the way, if you've never read it. It says this, Christmas Eve arrived, but mom didn't know what to expect. The narrator's mother is directing the pageant. Mom didn't know what to expect. It was like a terrible disaster about to descend. There was the usual chaos as kids arrived. The little shepherds and angels were crying and cranky and They were all in the wrong place. The lights were dimmed and the music began. Oh, little town of Bethlehem was the cue for Mary and Joseph to enter, but the herdmen's hadn't arrived. They were nowhere in sight. What was the delay? The music ended and humming was in its place. The anticipation was building. Did the herdmen's bail? Ralph and Imogene suddenly appeared, but there was no usual shoving or pushing. They just stood there as if they weren't sure they were in the right place. Maybe it was the crowd or the dimmed lights. Imogene was dressed as Mary in her costume, but the veil was crooked, and she wore these huge earrings. Ralph looked uncomfortable on stage. They looked like refugees we see on television news. Actually, that's what it must have been like for the Holy Family, feeling lost and out of place, uncertain what would happen next. They were stuck out in the barn and no one cared what happened to them and they were not neat or tidy. Perhaps Mary and Joseph looked more like Imogene and Ralph than we care to admit. Imogene, she held the baby as if to burp it on her shoulder. Baby Jesus had colic? Isn't that the whole point though? Jesus was born and lived and died. He was a real person. The night the baby seemed, this night seemed, this night the baby seemed more real than most other Christmas Eves. Well, next, Gladys stomped in. She's a sister. Her dirty sneakers snuck out from under the robe. Her halo was crooked. She's the angel. And since Gladys was the only one in the pageant who had anything to say, she said what, uh, she made the most of it. Hey, unto you is a child born. And she hollered it as if for sure it was the best news in the world. And all the shepherds trembled, sore afraid of Gladys mainly. But it looked good anyway. Leroy, Claude, and Ollie came in. That They didn't have the glass bath beads, jars, and, and all the other th- things that had been accumulated over the years. They came quietly, and they were the three wise men. They placed a ham at the feet of Mary and the baby. Barbara, she knew where it came from. She'd seen her dad work at the church Christmas committee to prepare family food baskets for the poor. Each basket had a ham, and this was the Herdman's Christmas charity ham. And people never knew these kids to give anything away. When it was time for the cast to exit, the Herdmans must have forgot they just sat there. They were quiet. They were taking in the whole scene. There was this mysterious serendipity that took over the place. The lights dimmed more. The candles were lit by people in the pews, and everyone began to sing Silent Night. Barbara looked over at Imogene, and she was crying. Imogene Herdman was crying. In the candlelight, her face was all shiny with tears. and She didn't even bother to wipe them away. She just sat there. Awful old Imogene in her crooked veil, crying and crying and crying. Tears streamed down her face as she tightly clutched the baby doll. It was the best Christmas pageant ever.
This was the funny thing about it. For years, I'd thought about the wonder of Christmas, the mystery of Jesus' birth, and never really understood it. But now, because of the herdmen's, didn't seem so mysterious after all. When Imogene and asked what the pageant was about, I told her it was about Jesus, but that was just part of it. It was about a new baby and his mother and father who were in a lot of trouble and had no money, no place to go, no doctor, nobody, nobody they knew. And then arriving from the east, there were some rich friends. But Imogene, I guess, didn't see it that way. Christmas came over her all at once, like a case of the chills or fever. And so she was crying. She was just walking into furniture, crying. And afterward, there were candy canes, little tiny testaments for everyone, and a poinsettia plant for my mother and the whole Sunday school. We put the costumes away, folded up the collapsible manger, and just before we left, my father snuffed out the last tall white candle. I guess that's everything, he said, as we stood at the back of the church all over now. It was quite a pageant. Then he looked at my mother. What, what's that you've got? It's the ham, she said. They wouldn't take it back. They wouldn't take any candy either or any of the little Bibles. But Imogene did ask for a set of Bible story pictures, and she took out the Mary picture. Said it was exactly right, whatever that means. I, I think it meant that no matter how she saw herself, Imogene liked the idea of Mary in the picture all pink and white and pure-looking as if she'd never washed the dishes or cooked supper or did anything at all except have Jesus on Christmas Eve. But as far as I'm concerned, Mary's always going to look a lot like Imogene Herdman, sort of nervous and bewildered, ready to clobber anybody that laid a hand on her baby. When we got out of the church that night. It was cold and clear and with crunching snow underfoot and bright and bright stars overhead. And I thought about the angel of the Lord, Gladys, with her skinny legs and her dirty sneakers sticking out from her robe and yelling at all of us everywhere, Hey, unto you a child is born. Indeed, unto us this day, this night, a child is born. His name's Jesus. He came to change the lives of everyone in that lineage we read in Matthew. And I'll tell you this, he came to change the lives of every one of us. He comes for all of us. For all the herdmen's of the world. I pray that as we have looked at this series, there's been someone you could identify with. Someone you could look at and say, you know what? <laughs> kind of like that. Feel like a nobody. Feel like a not wanted. Jesus came for you. That's what it means when we say, Merry Christmas. The Christ has come. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray.